In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, again, uh, we are uh, spending some time breaking from our normal schedule of preaching through books of the Bible to focus here uh, during this first Sunday of Holy Week, this Palm Sunday, on Psalm 24. And so if you'll take out your Bibles and turn with me there to this 24th Psalm. If you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be found on page 582. 582. It's my intention this evening to look at all 10 verses of this great psalm uh, that has been sung by the people of God throughout the ages of the Christian faith. This psalm of David. Again, reading all 10 verses of Psalm 24, page 582. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of, seek the, face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Well, you probably know something of uh, the fact that we love to celebrate great victories with things like parades. Uh, One of my favorite things to watch on the History Channel is World War II in color. I don't know if you've ever watched that series of Shows, But one of my favorite scenes is there on January 12th, 1946, there in New York City, uh, where we have one of the grandest displays of victory as we parade through the town, uh, parade through the great city of New York to celebrate the end, the victorious conclusion of World War II. Admittedly, we don't do parades much any more for military battles or military victories. Of course, many communities still hold Fourth of July parades to celebrate our great victory over uh, Great Britain when we gain our independence. But we're probably more, at least I'm more, uh, more keen to see these days these great victories by sports teams when they win national championships. Of course, you've probably seen something of the fact. All of these players and coaches and their wives and and their children, they all uh, ride through the midst of the city in which they represent uh, and they they exclaim and and they celebrate the victory with a parade. I think that we would rightly say that Psalm 24 is something of a victory parade psalm. 
Some scholars have some disagreement on when exactly David, King David, writes this psalm, but it seems most likely, and most of the greatest scholars agree, that, that he writes this as the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back into the city of Jerusalem. And you know something of this joyful procession, uh, if you know your Old Testament, because it comes after many, many years of conflict and struggle, both for the great King David and the people of Israel. You know, the Philistines, they had oppressed Israel for generations upon generations. And, and, and if you know your Old Testament well, you'll remember that there is this one battle that kind of gave the picture or or gave the, the totality of destruction for the people of Israel when the sons of Eli, the great high priest, they were killed in battle and the Ark of the Covenant was then taken captive by the Philistines. And of course, because God is God and He is more powerful than any army that the Philistines might have, He began to curse and, and, and plague the enemy armies. But then they began to, to hide the ark in private homes for uh, many years. And King David, uh, after, after being anointed as the next king, you see him running from, you know, running from King Saul for his life. You see him in tragic battles against the Philistines. You see King Saul even killed, but rather than you know, bringing David or propelling David to the throne at that moment, you see years of civil war in the nation of Israel. But then it comes, comes to this culmination uh, where David finally is crowned king of Israel. He leads his people to conquer Jerusalem, a city held by the Jebusites, and he has one final wish. He wishes to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the great city of Jerusalem so that the people of God might be reminded that it is here amongst the people that God is pleased to dwell. Well, you, well, you know something, I hope, of the attempt uh, to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. You remember they, they put the Ark on a cart and they begin to roll it uh, trying to bring it to the city of Jerusalem, disobeying the rules in which God had established that the Levites were to carry the Ark of the Covenant on poles. And then it's Yuza, you remember, who, who tries to catch the Ark from, from, from tumbling over off the cart. And immediately as his sinful hand tries to steady the Ark, he is struck down just as the Lord had warned. And with this sobering experience on David's mind, but this burning desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, into the ancient city of God's people, David rightly throws a party, has a parade, a victorious parade, a celebratory parade as the Levites carry in the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing, if you will, the presence of the Lord now again with the people of God. He has no longer divorced her, but he has proved himself faithful as he is back in their presence. They his people and he their God. And you know, the, the, the human or the, or the fleshly reaction, if you will, 
to this great military victory by King David, this this culmination of David finally sitting upon the throne, the, the retaking of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Philistines, all of these things would lead you to, to say or, or, or to think that they are now going to celebrate the mighty works of David. And yet David writes this, many scholars would say, this call and response song led by David and the high priest and followed or responding with the people of God there in Jerusalem. David writes this this hymn, this song of celebration, this victory parade music to say this is nothing to do or this has nothing to do with me. Yes, I might be king. And yes, we might be God's chosen people, but what we should be celebrating is the Lord, the Lord of hosts, who is mighty in battle, who is faithful to us in battle, faithful to us as His people, faithful to the generations of those who would seek Him as our fathers have sought Him in the past. This this psalm... Uh, which would have been sung on Sundays as the people of God in the Old Testament. It is a cry that the Lord, God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, is King over all. And that's the first two verses. If you look back at the first two verses, I hope you keep your Bibles open. We're going to move through this psalm very systematically. Verses 1 and 2 begin to declare very quickly, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and He has established it upon the waters. Notice the psalmist David does not give any room for any kind of dispute. He begins to proclaim that this is the Lord's creation. As they are celebrating, as they are worshiping, as they are singing there in Jerusalem, as they are watching the Levites carry in the Ark of the Covenant, David is reminding them, yes, the victory over the Philistines, the victory over the Jebusites, the victory that has given Jerusalem back into our hands. It was all to do with the Lord God Almighty But in fact, it's just not Jerusalem in which He has dominion over. It is the whole world in which God reigns over. He has established it in the very beginning. He has created the heavens and the earth by the simple words of His mouth. The world and all the fullness thereof belongs to our God. The Word of God has given existence, has given life to everything in creation. And of course, in the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here it is that the proclamation that our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that proclamation that our God has established the world and all therein is then backed by demonstration of God's power. You, you see, David, you can, you can imagine yourself there in this worship service of sorts. And it's this celebratory victory that, that God has given to His people. 
And it's as if there is this reminiscence of Genesis 1 and 2 ringing in the ears of the Jewish leaders of King David. It's just not Jerusalem in which God's people are called to have dominion over, but they're actually called to have dominion over the whole world. Here it is that the Lord has established and given us victory over the world through Christ Jesus who was the same God who spoke the world into existence. And again, remember what I've already said. The proclamation is backed up by demonstration. You think back through the Old Testament how how the forefathers of the Israelites, even at this point, they remember the stories that they have been told. The plague striking Egypt as God demonstrates that He is the true God over Egypt's lifeless idols. When the ark was taken by the Philistines and put there in the temple of Dagon, the temple of Dagon, there the main statue in that temple fell on its face before the ark the second time being broken into pieces. When Goliath mocked God, God used King David who now sits upon his throne there in Jerusalem to bring down the giant with a single stone from a sling. And even throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospels, Jesus proclaims time and time again that He is the Lord, the God Almighty, and He declares His kingship over all things. And He demonstrates it time and time again through His public miracles. Here it is that as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this first Palm Sunday, even as we read about it this morning in Matthew chapter 21, He is proclaiming and demonstrating that the new and better covenant has come and victory is going to be much greater than the defeat of the Philistines or the Jebusites. But all sin, all death, all evil, all of my enemies will be eradicated forever more in the person and work of Jesus. You know, that's the way that the Scriptures often work. There's a proclamation of the truth, and then there's a demonstration of the reality to that truth. There's a proclamation of the truth, and then there's a demonstration of the reality of that truth. And here, David is proclaiming that the Lord, Yahweh, is maker of all, And all people belong to Him. All people are subject to Him. And and they, all of creation, must worship. This, This call and response song, if you will, in which King David pens as the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back in, carried back into the city of Jerusalem. He is not calling just for the Israelites, the chosen people of God, to stop and to worship the very presence of the Almighty God. He is saying, just as we have dominion over the world, all the world, all the nations, all the peoples should pause and praise and worship at this very moment because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is here. And the fullness of the world is His. But you notice what what the psalmist David moves into then. As as he's calling the world, calling all of the creation uh, to worship God, he then asks, well, how can we approach this God in worship? If, if, If it is a call to worship for the world, 
all of creation, all the peoples, to pause and to worship God who created them, how can we approach this God in worship? Who can stand before Him? And that's what is handled there in verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Notice what he says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Here it is, beloved, that we must understand that God cares not only that we do the right things, but that we do the right things for the right reasons, you might say. He, he cares about the, the heart. He care, cares about what is flowing from without the heart. You know, oftentimes throughout the Psalter, David talks about how it seems as if the wicked, the wicked are doing great things and the wicked are flourishing on this side of glory. He says, I see the evil man and it seems as if the evil man is doing good. Well, yeah. Yeah, every now and then you can do the right thing. And yet the evil man does not do the right thing with the right motives. The evil man does not do the right thing for the right reasons. And that's why King David says it's not just about the action of actually doing it. It's about the heart posture in which we're doing it. The man who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in God's holy place is the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He is not the one who does it for the show. Remember what I said at the very beginning. David's psalm is not a victory parade song about his military might or even his military mind. It's all about how God has been faithful. A man who has a clean hands and a pure heart, he is the one that in everything that in which he does, he's not only doing what is right, but he is doing what is right for the, for the glory of God. Around the throne of God, we know this, don't we, from the, the, the revelation of heaven that's given to the Apostle John. We know that there's these four living creatures who never stop chanting, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And even the angels and the beasts of heaven, they have to cover themselves from the radiant glory of, of God's holiness. And David says, the only way to approach this holy, holy, holy God is to be clean, with clean hands and with a pure heart. And, and at that moment... To, to see what is required to stand in the presence of God, we read verses 3 and 4 and we say automatically, well, I'm not qualified. I don't do the right things like I ought. And even when I do the right things, I don't have the right posture of the heart as I ought. Romans 3 verses 10 through 18 actually summarizes our condition before God probably better uh, than anywhere else in the New Testament, at least I think. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, None is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. In paths, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When we, when, we, when we read verses 3 and 4, that should be at the forefront of our minds. If it's, a, if it's clean hands, if it's right actions with the right motives, we are so unqualified. We are those who we just do not do good. We do not do good. Our, our feet are swift to do evil. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our paths are ruin and misery. And we do not know the way of peace. And so what is our hope? What is our hope? Psalm 24 connects to Palm Sunday because it says that there is only one person who does this perfectly. There is only one person who can say, I have clean hands and I have a pure heart. I have not lifted up my soul to what is false and I have not sworn deceitfully. Therefore, I am able to ascend the hill of the Lord and I am able to stand in His holy place. And of course, that's Jesus, isn't it? You think about what is happening on that first Palm Sunday. Jesus, of course, rides into Jerusalem there on the donkey. And there are thousands, if not millions, gathered there for the Passover feast. And they are all there to ascend the hill of the Lord, to stand in the temple in the holy place of God. And the only one who is fit to do so is Jesus Christ Himself. He is the only one that has the right to stand in the presence of God. You might say, Jesus is the only one who passes the test of Psalm 24, 3 through 4. Like I said, actually, early on, I gave a hint to this. We know throughout many of the, of the Old Testament liturgies uh, that have been discovered, especially in the Greek versions of the Old Testament, there's these liturgies sprinkled through we know that actually it was Psalm 24 that was often sung on the first day of the week. Of course, we know the first day of the week of, as Sunday, right? But, but the Sabbath day for the Old Testament people was Saturday. And so they would sing the Sabbath songs on Saturday. And then on Sunday, they would sing these songs, these songs for the first day of the week they would be entitled. And here on the first day of the week, that first Palm Sunday, it's not a stretch to think that this is the song in which the people of God are singing. And so you, 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 picture, the, you picture the scene, right, of that first Palm Sunday as Jesus prepares to enter in into the temple before they even begin to sing the hosannas and the hallelujahs, before they begin to shout out, Oh God, save me today since the Babylonian exile, 600 years before Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, they are singing this. Who is this King of glory? So lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory 
may come in. Now, of course, in the historical context, they're singing this part as the doors of the ancient city of Jerusalem are are flung open for the Ark of the Covenant to be carried into the gates. But as they sing it on that first Palm Sunday, and then as Jesus, as Jesus comes onto the scene, you see that the new and better covenant has come. You see that the only one worthy to stand in the very presence of the Almighty and Holy God has come. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. And how can He be the King of glory? Well, He is the one who has come to Jerusalem and He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has pleased the Father in everything that He has done throughout His whole life. He has unmistakably demonstrated His identity as the Messiah, the true Son of God. He has lived a life of perfect obedience. He has proclaimed very clearly the Gospel and He has demonstrated it time and time again that He is not only the sinful, sinless Savior for a sinful people, but He is the King of Israel. And all of this is being fulfilled at, at His triumphant entry. When He comes onto the scene, He is the one who is receiving the blessing from the Lord. You see what it says there as it continues from verse 4 to verse 5. It's He who does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. If Jesus is the only one who can rightly stand before the Lord because He is the only one who has perfectly kept clean hands and a pure heart, then He is the only one worthy of receiving the blessing from God the Father. He is the only one worthy to proclaim that He is righteous. And I think that as we ponder and really think about Palm Sunday and and Psalm 24, verse 5 should carry much more significance to us. Because verse 5 lifts up Christ. It lifts up the one who has lived a perfect life. It lifts up the one who, though he was sinless, he received blessedness from God his Father so that he might proclaim us righteous. See, if, see you know, if he is the only one who is worthy to receive blessing from the Lord, if he is the only one to receive righteousness from the God of His salvation, He only does so so that He can gift it to us. In that big theological term that we like to use, that that idea of double imputation. Double imputation. That's not a hard theological concept for you to understand. Double imputation simply means that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you in faith and the sinfulness that you have, that you possess, has been imputed to Christ, has been placed upon Christ. You see, this blessed state in which Christ lives in because He is the one who has perfectly done the will of the Father is now given, imputed, counted to us. It's a remarkable story of the Gospel, isn't it? That though He was sinless, He took sin upon Himself so that we might be called 
the righteousness of God. You know, here it is that, that, that as the call goes out for the gates to lift up their heads and the ancient doors to be lifted up so that the King of glory may come in, we understand that this King of glory is, of course, Jesus Christ. And, and it's, so, it's so awesome to me as it says, who is this King of of glory. It's the Lord who is strong and mighty. It's the Lord who is mighty in battle. You think about that. You think about how Jesus has fought against the devil's temptations and has overcome them all. You think about how Jesus has gone to battle with the scoffers and the mockers and he has faced down demons and tormentors. He has conquered diseases like blindness. He has he has raised people like Lazarus from the dead. He has calmed the storms. He has, he has gone against in battle this sin-filled world and the evil one who prowls around it. And he has shown himself mighty and strong. And he has shown himself victorious. And as we even mentioned this morning, as we looked at the triumphant entry in the Gospels, he has now turned his eyes to the cross of Calvary, well, He will do even more battle. He will battle all the more. He will turn over the tables of the money changers and drive out the animal sellers from the temple courts. He will face down the devil again in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will show Himself mighty in battle, winning even through great agony. He will be buried, put to death, and yet He'll win again the battle against death by being resurrected from the grave. Here it is. That Psalm 24 in its historical context, I love this that one commentator has brought out. Here in this historical context, it's the gates of Jerusalem that are commanded to be opened up so that the King of glory may come in. But ultimately, what we must know is that it's much more ancient doors that had to break loose and open up for Christ to go through as well. And of course, we're talking about the gates of death and hell. I love how Peter puts it in Acts chapter 2. He said that the Lord was raised up on the third day because the chains or the gates or the pangs of hell could not hold Him. You see, here it is that the victorious Lord Jesus, He is proving to Himself to be mighty in battle. And the Apostle John sees this in Revelation chapter 1. He sees Christ and He falls down at His feet like a dead man. And then Christ speaks these words of comfort to John. And I hope you know them. He says, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to the gates of death and hell. You see, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, we, we must understand that this Lord of hosts, this Lord who is strong and mighty, this Lord who is mighty in battle, of course, is our King, our King Jesus. And yes, the invitation is for us to, to pause and to worship Him because He is the one that's worthy of our worship. And yet we do not have to do it in any way that we're overwhelmed with our inag inag you know, incompetency, inadequacy, 
because of our sin, but we can be those who will cling to Christ because His victory over the grave has shown us our victory over sin that He has, that he has made sure because He has the keys of death and hell forevermore. So we read verses 3 and 4 again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? Well, praise God, because of Christ, it's not only He who is able to say that, but it's we as well. We are able to say, because of Christ, we have clean hands and a pure heart. And we are those who do not lift up our souls to what is false, and we do not swear deceitfully. And because of Christ, we will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. Therefore, we seek Him We seek the face of the God of Jacob until he returns again. And then we see law. We rest. We rest in his eternal salvation forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come uh, to this, your word. And we pray, O Lord, that it would convict us where we need conviction, that it would encourage us where we need encouragement, so that we might be reminded uh, that through Christ we have been counted righteous in your sight and now we are able and we ought to come boldly into your presence to worship and adore you for a for for the good work that you have done here for us your people let us seek your face until you return again and let us rest in the promises of christ that you hold the keys to the gates of hell and death forevermore therefore let us stand in the surety of our salvation In Christ's name we pray, amen.